it, this is great. You can go to our YouTube channel. You can go to our podcast. You can go to the, it'll be on, online. It'll take you there. You can uh, tune in Facebook Live. We've been looking at the apostles. The name of the series is the apostles, their story and how it should impact ours. Because this is not just a character study. My goal is not to just get to the end, you take a test, and you can name 12 apostles. This is what, what about them can I pull from? Their, their strengths, their weaknesses. Why did Jesus choose them? Let's look at that. And how can I develop more as a person? And so tonight we look at uh, the Apostle John. The Apostle John, and he's familiar to us because he wrote much of the New Testament, a whole bunch of the New Testament. He was the writer of the Gospel of John. He was the writer of the three epistles that bear his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right before Revelation. And then he also wrote the book of Revelation. So aside from Luke and the Apostle Paul, John wrote more of the New Testament than any other human author. Because of this, Scripture is filled with insights into his personality and his character. Uh, as fact, in fact, as, as, as oneness apostolics who believe that Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh, not a, not a triune, co-equal, co-eternal God, we can thank John for clarity in oneness. And so uh, we see the, through the, his gospel how he views Jesus Christ. And so tonight we're going to look at this topic, the apostle who learned to love. The apostle who learned to love. See, both scripture and history record that John played a major role in the early church. Of course, he was a member of the Lord's most intimate inner circle, but by no means was he the, the most dominant of that inner circle. He was the younger brother of James, who we talked about last week. And although he was a frequent companion to Peter, actually, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Peter and John on Sunday. In the first 12 chapters of Acts, Peter remained in the foreground and John in the background. Almost everything we observed about this, the personality and character of James, who we discussed last week, we can, it can also be said about John, the sons of thunder, okay? John was, a, the, the two men had similar temperaments, as noted, noted in last week's lesson. They were inseparable in the gospel accounts. John was right there with James, eager to call down fire from heaven and consume those sinner Samaritans. He was also in the thick of the debates about who was the greatest. He, his zeal and ambition, it mirrored that of his older brother, James. So with all that being said, it's truly amazing to me that John became known as the apostle of love. How do you start out as the sons of thunder and end as the apostle of love? The Holy Ghost. John did more, he wrote more of the, uh, the New Testament about the importance of love than any other author. He talked regularly about a Christian's love for Christ, Christ's love for the church, a love for one another. It's the hallmark of true believers. He talked all about that. The theme of love, throws, it flows throughout his writings. But I would say that love, love was a quality that John learned it did not, he was not known, hey, I'm going to call this guy, he's one of the sons of thunder who's really good at loving people. He learned it over time. In his younger years, he was right with James. If you imagine that John was the way that medieval art often portrays him, that he was this meek, mild, pale-skinned, effeminate person lying around on Jesus' shoulder, staring into his eyes, like that was not the case. 
okay? You might as well forget that. John was rugged and hard-edged just like the rest of the fishermen disciples. He was every bit as intolerant, ambitious, zealous, and explosive as his older brother that we talked about last week. In fact, the one and only time the synoptic gospel writers recorded John speaking for himself, he displayed his trademark, aggressive, self-assertive intolerance. John's zeal for the truth shaped the way he wrote. Of all the writers in the New Testament, he's the most black and white in his way of thinking. He thinks and writes in absolutes. He deals with certainties. Everything is cut and dry. There there are not a lot of gray areas in his teachings. He understood the necessity of drawing a clear and a straight line. And this same approach carries with him into the epistles. He tells us, We are either walking in light or dwelling in darkness. He tells us that if we're born of God, then, then, then we, the, we're, we, he says we're either of, the, of God or of the world. He says if we love, we're born of God. And if we don't love, then we're not born of God. I mean, he makes it like so crystal clear. He also writes that whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor knows him. And John says all these things without qualification, without softening the lines. He certainly was not afraid to preach and teach it straight because John was zealous for truth. The way John writes is a reflection of his personality. Truth was his passion, and he seems to bend over backwards not to make it fuzzy and warm. Kind of like when he says in John 10, 30, there's all this discussion about the Godhead and who he was, and John just comes out and he says, he records Jesus saying, I and my Father are one. I love that. You can't, how can you dissect that? How can you break, he makes it so clear. I and my father are one. Jesus also spoke in absolutes like that. No doubt that John learned from the Lord's teaching style. Although John always wrote with warm and personal pastoral tone, it doesn't always make for soothing reading, but it does always reflect his deep convictions and absolute devotion to the truth. But like we talked about last week, A person who does not have balance is unsteady. We don't focus solely on one thing at the expense of casting another thing away. Look what Jesus said at one point in the Gospel of John. John 4, 24, he says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus was not downplaying one over the other. He wasn't elevating one over the other. Jesus is a God of balance, like we talked about with James. This is why we must have both love, but also a zeal for the truth. When someone starts trying to push me to choose, maybe, maybe comes right out and says it, or maybe it's an underlying discussion or argument, pushes you to choose. Well, what's more important? Is it truth and doctrine, or is it love? Because as, as followers of Christ, we're supposed to love one another. Don't let people push you. I say this all the time. Don't let people push you into that corner. Well, you're Apostolic Pentecostal. You guys believe in those rules. What rules? Are you talking about living in obedience to Jesus Christ? What he says in his word? That's not rules. That's me aligning my life in obedience. Well, what are you saying? Well, what's more important? Is it love or truth? Both. We're supposed to worship him in spirit and in truth. I like to remind people. I remind them I am a pastor who preaches truth because I love people. Is that easy? 
We preach truth because we love people. And if you're ever trying to win an argument because you have the truth you think and someone else has a lie or they, they, they don't follow it like you think they should, if you're preaching it hard because you're trying to win the argument, you're, you're outside the will of God. The only way, the only reason I would try to say, look at Scripture, look at the, it is never to win an argument. It is always because I love you and I want you to see truth. There must be balance in our lives and ministries. John needed to learn this as he walked with Jesus. John seems to have been committed to truth very early in his life. From the beginning, we see him as, spiritually, as a spiritually aware man who sought to know and follow truth. When we first encountered John, he and Andrew were followers of John the Baptist. But like Andrew, John, without hesitation, he began following Jesus as soon as John said, hey, there's the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. John's love of truth is evident in, in his writings. He uses the Greek word for truth 25 times in his gospel and 20 more times in his epistles. He loved truth. He even says this, uh, 3 John 4. There's only one chapter in 3 John. So that's the, it's 3 John 4, the fourth verse. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. No, no one in all of Scripture except the Lord himself had more to say about the very concept of truth. So when we say, ah, truth, is it really, is it relative? Is it? John certainly did not think so. We live in a day and age where truth is relative to the circumstance. It's relative to the situation. It's relative to your point of view. Not in John's world. Not in what he writes in the inspired word of God. God's word was truth. But sometimes in his younger years, John's zeal for truth was lacking. Or he, he had zeal for truth, but he was lacking in love and compassion for people. He needed to learn that balance. Like sometimes we need to learn. I've told you that story about when my dad, he was teaching a Bible study. He was so passionate and zealous for God. And somebody came into one of his Bible studies and he wanted one of the elders to read this letter he had wrote. And he said, look at this letter. I'm going to give it to this guy. I think I knock it out of the park. And the person read the three-page letter. All the scriptures were there. It was crystal clear. My dad made sense in what he was saying biblically. And he handed it back to my dad and said, this is an incredible letter. You prove your point. The only thing missing is it doesn't have love and compassion. My dad, I learned that, I, he, he learned that lesson and taught that to me. We're not out to win arguments. And so he needed to learn that balance, John did. We see this during an incident in Mark 9 where John forbid a man to cast out demons in Jesus' name. This is the only place, the one and only place in the synoptic gospels where John acts and speaks alone. Let me clarify what synoptic means just so you know. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. This simply means they include the same stories, similar sequence, sometimes even identical wording. Some people even believe that they used a common source as they wrote. Uh, they, they, they stand in contrast to John, whose John's content is, even though he's one of the Gospels, he's not one of the synoptic Gospels because his content is very different. He writes a little later and, write, and he writes very, very different than the first three. So this term synoptic is a word meaning synopsis or seeing all together. So I 
just clarify that as I'm throwing these terms around. But look at this story where John speaks in Mark. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. He followeth not us. So we forbade him because he followeth not us. This guy was trying to cast out devils in your name, but he ain't in our inner club. He's not in our circle. He doesn't go to our church. So we said he can't. How do you think Jesus responded? He said, good, good, because only our church is the right. Did he, did he say that? This is where we see a rare glimpse of John without James, without Peter, speaking for himself. This is pure John. In this same incidents, also recorded in Luke 9, just before Luke's account of the episode of the Samaritan village, when both James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven. We talked about it last week. The similarities of these two occasions are striking. In both cases, John is dis he's displaying just this appalling elitism and a lack of genuine love for people. In this incident with the Samaritans, James and John show showed a lack of love for unbelievers in the one we talked about last week. But here, John is displaying a similar kind of un uh, unlovingness to a fellow believer. The Samaritans, they were the, the unbelievers, and they were, oh, call down fire from heaven. That was, that was the, the intolerance and the, and the lack of love for the unbeliever. Here, you got somebody who's trying to cast out devils, a fellow, a, a, another believer, and they're showing that same attitude. And guess what? When you're out of balance, heavy on zeal, but not on love, you tend to show a lack of mercy and grace to both believers and unbelievers alike. So what does Jesus say? Well, in verse 39, he says, don't stop him. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who's not against us is for us. Interesting. Did Jesus say that anybody that, 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 is, that is using my name, or that they're perfectly right, that their, their eternity is secure for them? No, he's just saying that there's a process going on there, and don't, don't get in their face. If they're not for us, if they're not against us, they're for us. John doesn't want this guy casting out devils because he's not a member of their group. The incident occurred shortly, this story occurs shortly after the transfiguration. You know that glorious mountaintop experience. You see Moses and Elijah, and, 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 and the only people that witnessed it were Peter, James, and John. Nobody else got to go. Imagine, they're, they're coming up this mountaintop, and they get this incredible experience, and they're like, should we build a, a, a tower? Should we build a house for all of you? And, you know, that's Peter. But they got in on this amazing experience with Jesus. If we're not careful, hear this, the more that the Lord reveals to us, the more mountaintop experiences that we have, the more arrogant we can become if we don't guard our hearts. And John probably battled that arrogance a little bit. 
After all, the disciples, these are the only three that made it up that mountain. They tended to argue then about who's the greatest. I mean, after all, I think we probably would have partook in that argument a little bit. Everybody else gets left behind. We're invited into the inner club, the inner circle. It's just me, you, and you. And man, we just saw the most of me. But then he says, don't tell anybody about it. That's even harder. So you have to walk around not saying anything, but you got this like, oh, I'm better than you. Oh, I've experienced things. You ain't. I'm sorry. How long have you walked with God? Because you, I understand where you're coming from because you've never experienced some of the things I've experienced. If we're not careful, we as Pentecostals can have that same attitude. We have to be careful. I'm not saying that we say, hey, I'm different. Here's why we're different. Let me show you scripture. That's fine. But there should never be this sense of elitism. And so they probably really felt great. And Jesus straight up calls them out for their little conversation they're having on the road. And then who do you think's the greatest in the kingdom? I don't know, Peter, you got a big mouth. That don't matter, though, because I'm powerful. Well, James is like, dude, I got invited to the mountainside, too. I mean, like, hello, it might be me. They're having this, this, this ridiculous conversation that we might imagine six- and seven-year-old boys to have about who's the strongest or can jump the front. Actually, you know what I hear boys sometimes talk about is whose dad is stronger. I'm like... My dad's stronger than your dad. Mark 9.33, though, says, After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you discussing out on the road? Pause right there. Did Jesus hear them when they were discussing it right when it happened? He didn't address it right there, did he? He waited until they got settled in the house and the time was right. Sometimes when you're trying to correct someone or set someone straight or teach someone something or or show someone something, you don't always do it instantaneously. There's a time that's right in the spirit that you wait for and then you know when it's, you know what, when you're led by the spirit, you say, now's the time to have this conversation. We don't just have it when it bugs us because I guarantee you that bugged Jesus right when it happened. But he waits. They get settled in the house. He says, hey, what were you talking about? Why did he ask that question? Did Jesus not know? Was he, was he looking for information here? He was not. He was looking for confession, not information. And they didn't answer. Isn't that interesting? What were you guys talking about? And three guys all of a sudden start drawing in the sand like Jesus used to do with the miracles, Right? They didn't answer because they had been arguing about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him. He said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and the servant of everyone else. Then he put a child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, he started talking about the child. But he compared them to being like a child. Jesus was looking for confession. He knew what they were talking about, but they were embarrassed, and rightfully so. And honestly, like I say, we might have been in on that argument too after that transfiguration. But this rebuke from the Lord, it obviously spoke to John. Because it's here where we find John speaking in the Synoptic Gospels. This is the only time he speaks 
in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The only time. In verse 38, right after all this happens, they're embarrassed. (laughs) John says to Jesus, teacher, rabbi, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. It's kind of a weird place to say it, isn't it? John here is referencing something that happened at an earlier point. Why would he bring this up right now out of the clear blue after Jesus just corrected him about, y'all need to stop. If you want to be the greatest, you need to be a servant. And you're just sitting there and you're embarrassed and you're just like, ah, I shouldn't have had this conversation. That's not the place that I would have gone. Jesus, hey, and one other thing is I actually... uh, was so arrogant that I actually asked a guy to stop casting out people. And I just I was just going to tell you that too. Why? I'm inclined to think that John missed the opportunity to confess. What were you talking about? Man, Jesus, we were talking about who was the greatest. Shouldn't have done it. He missed the opportunity to confess. So Jesus gets on him and says, hey, come here, little child. You you need to be like this little child. Because if you want to be the greatest, the greatest is the servant among you. And he finishes, and John, I think, feels a little prick in his heart. He feels a little conviction, and he says, master, I did something else. A while back, we had somebody trying to cast out demons in your name, man, they weren't with us, so I said to stop. I missed confession the first time around. I'm not going to miss it. And I'm not talking about confession where you go sit in a booth and talk to a priest. I'm talking about I'm repenting of my sins and saying, God, I missed it. I'm not going to miss it again because there was something. He's, I think he started to feel some conviction. Something in John was beginning to change, and he was beginning to see his own lack of love as undesirable. The fact that John made this confession was indicative of the transformation that was taking place in him. His conscience was bothering him. He was getting more tender. He'd always been zealous and passionate for truth, but Jesus was teaching him to love. It's a major turning point in his life and thinking. John was beginning to see the need of the balance between love and truth. Remember this. You might want to write this down, type this out. This is a good saying right here. Truth without love has no decency. Truth without love has no decency. It's just brutality. Truth without love has no decency. It's just brutality. Love without truth, I'm going slow because there's three or four of you writing. Love without truth has no character. It's just hypocrisy. So you see the difference there. Truth without love has no decency. It's just brutality. Love without truth has no character. It's just hypocrisy. Some people are as imbalanced as John was. 
only in the other direction. They place so much emphasis on the love side of the fulcrum. We are surrounded by a lot of these people in this day and age. The love side of the fulcrum. In this case, truth is missing and they're just left with error. It's clothed in a shallow, tolerant sentimentality. Now stick with me. Don't, don't walk out on me. Don't tune out on YouTube or something, okay? Because I'm not saying love's not important. I think I've established that tonight already. But they talk a lot about love and tolerance, but they utterly lack any concern for real truth. Therefore, even the love that they speak of is a tainted love. And so, they just talk love, just focus on love. But if I really love someone, am I not going to tell them the truth? When Paul writes a whole chapter to the Corinthian church about love, look at one of the things he says in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. He says, rejoiceth not, talking about love, in iniquity. But what does love rejoice in? Love rejoices in truth. So I can't just say, all we need to do is love. Jesus Christ, love. Why don't people love? You just can't, you can't make people feel bad. All you got to do is love. People just need to be loved. But love rejoices in truth. So true and real love rejoices in truth. Don't spare the truth and somehow say you're doing it because you love someone. Now on the flip side of this, there are many people who have their theological ducks in a row. They, have, they know their doctrine inside and out. But the problem is, is they are unloving and self-exalting. They're left with truth. Is, truth is just cold, hard facts. Just look at the word. All you got to do is just open the Bible. How could you ever believe that? How could you see? That's just foolishness. That's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. Just look at the Bible. Just cold, hard facts. Look at Scripture. Well, that's lacking in some compassion there. Their, their lack of love cripples the power of the truth that they profess to revere. If we are to be the truly godly people that Jesus Christ is calling us to be, we have got to walk in the balance of these things. He's looking for us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Look how Paul challenges the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4.14. Then we will no longer be immature like children, he writes to the church. He said, we won't be tossed and blown around with every wind of new teaching, every wind of doctrine, King James says. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will do what? Speak the truth in love. He's emphasizing both things here. Don't get blown around with every wind of doctrine. So many people teach so many different things. Stand for truth. Know what truth is. Doctrine's important. And teach doctrine. Preach doctrine. Live doctrine. But in doing that, do it in love. 
Paul's imploring the church for, to stand for that truth. John apparently learned this lesson well. His brief second epistle offers vivid proof of how he, he gained that balance of truth and love. Look at this, 2 John 1, uh, also just one chapter, but starting in verse 1. This is the letter from John the Elder. I am writing to the chosen lady and to her children, whom I love in the truth, as does everyone else who knows the truth. Verse 2, because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. Truth is important. Truth is the one thing that will always stand. Three, grace, mercy, and peace, which come from the God, the Father, from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. I think John somewhere, zealous son of thunder, had a transformational experience where he said, I can't lose the zeal and the thunder, but I got to pick something else up here to, to balance me out a bit. And so then he writes in verse 4, how happy I was to meet some of your children and find them living according to the truth. Verse 5, I'm writing to remind you, dear friends, we should love one another. Verse 4 says live in the truth. Verse 5 says love one another. This is not a new commandment. We've had it since the beginning. In verse 6, he says love means doing what God has commanded us and has commanded us to love one another. What does it mean to do what God's commanded us? That's obedience. So you better believe that I'm going to preach. We've got to obey. We've got to obey what God says about righteous living. We've got to obey what God says about water baptism. We've got to obey what God says about, about spirit infilling. There's obedience that he's calling for, obedience that's required. Oh, I can't believe you push that stuff so much. You guys need to focus on love. Just Jesus loved everybody. You're right, we love everyone. And because I love them so much, I'm going to preach the truth. Because God commanded us to love one another. And he commanded us in verse 6, it means doing what God has commanded us. That's what love means. So I'm going to find the balance of loving someone enough to tell them the truth. Both love and truth must be maintained in perfect balance. Truth is never to be abandoned in the name of love. But love's not to be disposed of in the name of truth. That's what John learned from Jesus, and it gave him the balance he desperately needed. We see he gained that balance by noticing a few key things. First, throughout John's gospel, he never once mentioned his own name. I don't know about you. <laughs> if I was trained by Jesus, went to the Mount of Transfiguration, got to the Garden of Prey, I mean, I saw some awesome things. I may have two or three times used my name. I'd really want someone to know I was there. You know, this is pretty cool. And I, Gary, was there with Peter, and man, we had a great time. It was incredible. John never uses his name. The Apostle John refuses to speak of himself in reference to himself. Instead, he speaks of himself in reference to Jesus. Rather than writing his own name, he always refers to himself. Do you know how? Disciple whom Jesus loved. By doing this, he was giving glory to Jesus 
for loving such a man. John's gospel is also the only one that records, the only one that records in detail Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet. It's clear that Jesus' own humility on that night of his betrayal made a lasting impression on John because he describes that in depth. As far as we know, John was the only disciple who was an actual eyewitness to Jesus' crucifixion. He was standing close enough to probably be splattered with blood. The only one. Close enough to the cross for Jesus to actually call out to him and speak to him. He probably watched the Roman soldiers drive the nails in. He was there when the soldier finally pierced the Lord's side with a spear. And Jesus entrusted John to be the one who cared for his own mother, Mary. That itself, that itself speaks volumes to me about who John was. Jesus on the cross says, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. He entrusted the care of his own mother to the apostle John. When John's brother James becomes the church's first martyr, John bore the loss in a more personal way than others. His brother is the first one to be killed. As each of the other disciples was martyred one by one by one, John suffered the pain and the agony of additional loss. These were his friends, his companions, and soon he was the only one left. And some people say, man, what a lucky dog, man. Everybody else gets killed. They're filleted alive, hung, crucified upside down, beat to death with a club, dragged to death. And John gets exiled to Patmos and, and writes, and man, he's lucky. But in some ways, I would argue with you that that may have been the most painful suffering of all. One by one, all of the people he lived his life with started with Jesus, and then his brother, and then every other apostle was brutally killed for the cause of Christ, and he had to just sit there. Imagine just going to one funeral after the next funeral after the next funeral of all of your closest friends in life. Virtually all reliable sources in the early church history attest to the fact that John became the pastor of the church that the Apostle Paul founded in Ephesus. From there, during a great persecution of the church, John was banished to a prison community on the island of Patmos. He lived in a cave there, and that's when God started to speak to him and give him dreams. And he began to pen the book of Revelation. I wish, he, I wish he would have taken a little more time to write a little more clearly on that book. But John learned to bear suffering willingly because in all of his gospel, epistles, the book of Revelation, all of the things he went through, never one time do we read one complaint. I don't know about you. If I gave up everything, you killed my brother. My, the Savior died. I got thrown in the island of Patmos. Everybody that was close to me got martyred. 
I might have wrote a thing or two that meant like, yeah, life's tough right now. I'm in a cave. It's freezing cold. It's damp. I haven't ate in a few days. It's miserable. We never read anything from John. No complaints. John, he learned the lessons he needed to learn. He became the man that Jesus Christ called him to be. He had a beautiful balance of this zealous love for the truth. But also, he developed somewhere along the line, probably from what I can see scripturally, he developed it when he said to Jesus, you just rebuked me. I missed my chance for repentance. But can I tell you something about something that happened a little earlier than this? Some guys were trying to cast out demons, and I, they were using your name, but I just, I told them to stop. Something shifted. The son of thunder that stood for truth realized, man, I got to have patience with people. I look at the way Jesus does it. He's knocking over tables and casting out the money changers. But then I also saw him. Maybe he starts to see, you know, he also went up to a prostitute and bent down and said, hey, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. He made these stops for people. And when he rightfully could have said, you're condemned, you should be put to death, you're never going to be in my kingdom, like Brother Graham talked about Sunday. And John picked something up along the way. And when it come time to write, he says, oh, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's all about Jesus, the fact that he could love me. And I just want to love other people. And so as he starts to write later letters, he still has that same passion for truth. But he talks a whole bunch about but let it be in love. There's nothing I love more than to see my children walk in truth. And that's something that I think can challenge all of us tonight. Because I want to have that. I'm not going to shake around in the wind. I have a passion for doctrinal truth. But if you say, well, is it love or truth more important? They both are important. And I'm going to preach the truth because I love someone. I invite you tonight to stand to your feet. And I invite you to just find a place to pray before you leave because I think there might be one, two, three, four, five, ten of us, I don't know, that maybe you're feeling God just trying to tell you, you know what, it's time to get a little bit deeper in doctrinal truth. You need to know what you believe and why. It's time to, to get more and more grounded in truth. But for someone else, it might be, hey, you, you know what? You could take people to the book of Ephesians, the book of Acts. You can show them Acts chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father above all, who's above all and through all and in you all. And you, man, you know your stuff. And you could win any debate with any coworker. Oh, you got it. But maybe God's trying to tell you, you know what? You got the truth, but what about the love? 
When people converse with you, do they feel like the argument is always going to be won? Or do they feel like the person I'm speaking to genuinely loves me? That they care about my situation. They know where I'm at. Because in order for that doctrinal truth to really make an impact in someone's life, they need to know that we love them. And so I think we could all aim for that balance tonight as we pray before we leave. God, help us to be like John in this, in this manner. To have that delicate balance of loving people but standing for truth.